0: facing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Shirts and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Shirts and Jim Russ.
1: Welcome to Tech, Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Your name here, please. I'm Dr. Richard Shirts, And I'm Jim Russ. Well, thank you very much. This has been a rough, rough uh, yeah. evening trying to get Tech Talk going. So I think I'll get back into the swing of it in a minute. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in technology this uh, this week. Uh, uh, I'm going to talk about non-fungible tokens. NFT.
0: Non-fungible tokens. That has nothing to do with mushrooms.
1: Non-fungible tokens, Jim. A lot of people are making money on non-fungible tokens. And I'm going to talk all about what that technology exactly is. (laughs) Now, the trend of the week with all these Zoom tests and proctoring online, cheating on proctored exams is turning out to be a big issue. Mm -hmm. And college students have figured out how to do it. Of
0: course they have.
1: Yeah, the North Koreans have been charged with cryptocurrency theft. I mean, they're basically funding that museum with, or that uh, that country with... uh, with, uh, with Bitcoin, stolen Bitcoin, so they're always trying to get into somebody's wallet. Deep fake videos are a real threat. They're getting better and better, and <clears throat> you really can't tell whether it's a fake video or a real video, and it's becoming a problem on the Internet. Now, this week we're going to feature Arthur Samuel. He's the man who coined the name machine learning. And he made the first program that used machine learning to solve a problem. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Lynn in Cleveland. Dear Doc and Jim, I've wanted to buy a solid state drive for my laptop for a while, but the prices are so high that I've been holding back. Now, I checked eBay last night, and there's a person selling a... A 512 gigabyte SSD. Uh, it's crucial. The name is crucial. MX500 for seventy dollars. What's your opinion? Should I buy a used solid-state drive? What do you think, Lynn in Cleveland, Ohio? Well, Lynn, installing a solid-state drive on your on your laptop is probably the best upgrade you can make, because it will boot up really fast, and it will and it will function much faster. Because the um, the the data rates coming off the drive are much faster the, than they are in a traditional magnetic disk drive. Uh, uh, so I think you should go ahead and get them. So I, it's all a solid state drive.
0: Can I ask a question? Sure. Do, do most new computers now come with a solid state drive?
1: No, not necessarily. Because really? they're they're more expensive.
0: Huh? Okay. I didn't more know that.
1: Expensive. Yeah. You you uh. You know, uh, it, it depends how much people want to want to pay. The sol- but the solid-state drives are, are dropping in price so much that I think, Jim, we may have hit the, 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 the point where nearly everything will be a solid-state drive. I think we're almost to that point now. But you can't be guaranteed of it because they might be selling out some old inventory that have the old magnetic drives. Now, unlike a spinning hard drive, solid-state drives can only be written to a limited number of times. And every time you do a write action on the drive, it takes a- away some of the useful life of that solid-state hard drive. Since you don't know how many write cycles that drive has been uh, has encountered, you have no way of knowing what the life of the drive will be. Now also, even though you the solid-state drive, solid drive might appear to be working well, uh, it could contain non-working memory cells, and if it has that condition, it could only get worse in a hurry and, hmm. and the hard drive would fail. So I would not get a used hard drive. You don't know. It's like getting a pig in a poke. But uh, but I'll tell you, Lynn, <laughs> I've the, never the prices one on hard drives have just dropped like a rock. I mean, it, you can go on to uh, Amazon, get a 500 gigabyte solid state drive for $70. Um, that's about the same price he's charging you for a used one. And if you add a little bit of money to it, you can get a one terabyte solid state drive. I mean, you know, for less than $100. So my, my advice is, Spend 100 bucks, get a new one-terabyte uh, solid-state drive for your laptop. Forget this used thing. We got an email from Helen in Rockville. Dear Tech Talk, I keep watching references to cloud computing. I'm just wondering what it is and how it works. I've been using computers at work for many years, but this term is new to me. Helen in Rockville. Well, Helen, uh, the term cloud computing refers to any computing service that is provided over the internet, instead of being a program or an app on your local computer, now you're actually using cloud computing all the time. Your online email services like Gmail or Outlook are cloud computing. Now the reason they call it cloud computing is that the uh, information is stored is, is stored on multiple in multiple locations. The hardware is distributed. So you can't actually write a circuit that goes from your computer directly to the server that you're talking to because it's basically a collection of servers with load sharing. So they they draw on the diagrams that collection of servers that have load sharing as like a little cloud. And you're just talking to the cloud, but not to a specific server. Now you also have online file storage services like... Google Drive, Dropbox, iCloud, Microsoft OneDrive, those are all cloud storage services. That means they're distributed uh, at a data center on multiple multiple services, multiple servers. They're running virtualized serving services, virtualized uh, um, storage. So if one hard drive goes bad, it doesn't matter. They just transfer the data to another hard drive. So you, it's very robust. But it's not a specific hard drive. You also have uh, online backup services like Carbonite, iDrive. They they also use cloud computing and uh, online photo editors like Pix or PixLR or PicMonkey. They use online. So I'm certain that you're using cloud services all the time. That you just call it by the name of the of the um, application you're using rather than the rather than the un- underlying technology. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc Jim and the persistent Mr. Big Voice.
0: Persistent I only in the... search for cigarettes. That's the only thing he's persistent about, really.
1: Yeah, that and that is a problem because uh, most of the time he's out smoking. That's right. why he gets back late, especially mm-hmm. for profiles in IT.
0: Yes. So he shoots. He starts the show off badly. Yes. Yeah,
1: I know. But he 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 tends to get better close to the Christmas uh, uh, bonus time.
0: Didn't seem to matter this year, though. Yeah, well, that is, is true. There was no bonus. That,
1: that <laughs> is true. So uh, uh, Bob is talking about the gig economy. He sees, he sees that it's growing and that uh, and that some of the companies that hire gig workers are exploiting them. He said, check out this article about gig workers who gather their own data to check the algorithm's math. Drivers for Uber, Lyft, and other firms are building apps that compare their mileage to their pay slips to see whether they're getting paid what they should be getting paid. What do you think, Doc? All the best. Your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, that is an interesting article. It talks about Amin Sami. He's an Uber Eats driver. I mean, not really a driver. He's a biker. He rides a bike to Ah. deliver the food in San Francisco. And he's been biking for Uber Eats for, uh, you know, uh, since last July. Well, he accepted a a delivery, uh, you know, for an Uber Eats, and they said, well, it's about 20 minutes. But the app led him up one of the steepest hills in the city. And there was a four-mile, one-way trip that took him about an hour on the bike. (laughs) And then he noticed... (laughs) It was a four mile trip. Uber uh, Uber Eats only paid him for one mile oh,
0: because man. they did it
1: as the crow flies, not as the streets go. Uh. And so what he did, he's a software engineer, and he created a Chrome extension called Uber Cheats. <laughs> Uber Cheats, and it helps workers spot pay discrepancies. So the extension automatically extracts the start and end points of each trip. It calculates the shortest distance using roads. Yeah. And then it examines that and compares it to the pay stub. And it and if there is a discrepancy, it flags it for further observation. Digital tools like this are popping up to help freelancers get back control against these opaque algorithms. With pay structures that change all the time, I really think this makes sense. Uh, companies drop people that work for DoorDash, for Amazon, for Instant Cart Hire. They're they're all they're all trying to fight back against these algorithms. I think this is a real trend, and I, I think it's a really a healthy thing to do because the companies I believe, uh, I mean, I, I'm going to think of them in a positive way. It it's just an error. And if you correct it, I I don't think they'll object to it at all. I think that's a very good, a very good initiative. Amen. In. We got an email from Paula in Minneapolis. Dear Doc and Jim, I use my cell phone to work all the time. Sometimes when I'm at a meeting, a notification pops up on the lock screen, and it really it could be something I don't want my coworkers to see. Yeah, if you know what I mean. Uh huh. Is there any way I can stop them? Minneapolis, uh, Paula from Minneapolis. Well well Paula, uh, yeah, allowing motivations to, uh, notifications to pop up on the lock screen is a security issue. It also is a privacy issue. For instance, if you had two- factor authentication enabled on your uh, say your email uh, and somebody had your password and they were sitting beside your cell phone, they could log into your email account and they could look over at your cell phone and they could see the code, displayed as a notification right on your cell phone. And that could be a problem, I mean, especially if you don't trust your coworkers. And you never know what uh, some email message is going to say So you don't, or a text message. You don't want those popping up. So if you want to block the notifications that show up on the lock screen, if you've got an Android phone, you just tap on the settings icon. It looks like a gear or a cog. Tap privacy, tap lock screen, and then select either... Hide sensitive only, hide all notifications, or don't show notifications at all. And that that way you can control the notifications. If you've got an iPhone, you tap on the settings. It's a gear or a cog again. Tap on notifications. Tap show previews, and under that when uh, in that window, select either when unlocked or never show previews, when unlocked, or never. Those are your two choices. If you follow those directions, either the iPhone or the Android, your notifications will be gone. We got an email from Anna in Kilmarnock. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got an older laptop that's still running Windows XP, and I got a question about it. My laptop's a Dell Latitude D620. It's been upgraded with four gigs of RAM and a 320 gigabyte hard drive. That would be the old magnetic hard drive, I'm sure. can you recommend the best version of Linux to install on this computer? There are so many Linux versions out there to choose from, and I got no idea which one to pick. Anna, in Morning. Anna, you know, playing around with Linux—that is a great idea. And you guys that want to get IT jobs out there and just trying to learn—if you got an old laptop around, install Linux on it. it it might be a dog with Windows, but but Linux is not a resource hog, so what might have run really slow with Windows is going to be pretty snappy with Linux. So your, your laptop is certainly has got enough RAM. It could easily run pretty much any Linux distribution that's out there. Now, your choices should depend on what you actually want to do. Now, if your goal is just to want to have a working computer that you can start using every day to surf the web, send and receive emails, edit photos, and other routine computer tasks, I'd recommend that you get Linux Mint with the Cinnamon desktop. Minty fresh. Yes, Linux Mint with the Cinnamon desktop. Now, Linux Mist is the most window-like flavor of Linux. And it's got a great Cinnamon desktop that's really attractive and easy to use. It's also a very easy distribution to install and get working. Uh, It's got all of the um, device drivers that you need. Once it's up and running, it tends to run really smoothly. With Linux Mist, most of the programs that you'll need to run, such as Firefox Web Browser, the GIMP Photo Editor, which is an open-source photo editor, which is a, um, you know, uh, really a great a great option if you don't want to pay for an expensive photo editor and, and other programs will just install automatically with just a few, few clicks of the mouse. If you want to download it, go to linuxmint.com. L-I-N-U-X Mint You can download it. It's free of charge. I find that any, I yes? find
0: that mint and cinnamon do not go together. It's one or the other, really. It's really one of the <laughs> they other. They are yes, competing so. flavors.
1: Yeah, well, well, see, I guess it's the operating system is mint, and it's topped with the cinnamon
0: desktop. (laughs) This is just way too much.
1: I know, it really is. is. We got an email from Barry in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, I just bought an Acer Aspire laptop with Windows 8 at an estate auction. I got it for 20 bucks. I hope it's a good deal. (laughs) Now, once I got the laptop home, I booted it up and found it had three user accounts. The admin account did not have a password on it. Wow. And the other two accounts were standard accounts with passwords. I'd like to uh, reset this machine to the the default settings. Uh, Can I do that? Well, it's really easy to do that on your laptop, Barry, this Acer Aspire. And because you've got the admin account without a password, you can easily do it. Simply log into your admin account. And then you want to bring up the recovery management utility. Now, all you have to do is just search. You go to the little search button there in the lower left, put in recovery, and you'll see a list of files, a list of programs, and then click on recovery management. And then once you click on the, Repu- rep- re- the Acer recovery management uh, program, uh, click on it, open it up, you'll see uh, an option that says restore factory settings. Click on that and just follow the prompts. And then your laptop will restart a few times you'll be prompted to perform the initial setup just like you did before and it will be like a brand new windows 8 machine that you had just configured now i'd recommend that you upgrade to the latest version of windows 8 and download any security updates that may be available you know just just out of a, a, an abundance of caution listen we love your emails Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
0: You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and now southwest of Baltimore, or rather D.C., 1077 FM HD 2. Here's in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University and how you can attend by going to stratford.edu.
2: In the next 3 years there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed from certifications to bachelors and even masters degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford
1: Arthur Lee Samuel is an American pioneer in the field of computer gaming and artificial intelligence. He coined the term machine learning. Samuel was born December 5, 1901, in Emporia, Kansas, and graduated from the College of Emporia in Kansas, 1923. I grew up in Kansas.
2: Yeah, you did. And I've,
1: I went to Emporia at, at many debate tournaments there. I was a big debater back in Kansas. Are so. you from Lawrence? No, I'm from Pittsburgh, Kansas.
0: Pittsburgh, Kansas, huh? It doesn't have the H. I was going to uh, say, it doesn't have the H, does it?
1: It it doesn't have the H, no. But uh, I was on the debate team there in high school and college and uh, went all over the state debating. Uh, he received a master's degree in electrical engineering from MIT in 1926, and then he just stayed on at MIT and taught as an instructor for a couple of years. Then he joined Bell Labs. And this was back when vacuum tubes were the thing. This was pre-transistor. You know, back vacuum tubes were the item, were the selected uh, active ingredient at, of choice. And um, and he was working on improvements in radar systems during World War II. Um, they um, and so he worked in particular on the on a gas discharge switch, which was called a transmit-receive switch. And so whenever the radar would be transmitting, the transmit-receive switch would turn on and protect the sensitive receiver from being blown out by the transmitter. And then as soon as they were done transmitting the pulse, the TR switch would open up, and then the receiver could receive the reflected signal. So this would allow you to use a single antenna for both transmit and receive. After the war, he moved to the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, where he initiated the ILIAC project. This was a project that was going to be developing the first computer there at the University of Illinois. But he left before the computer was complete. He left there before they completed the computer because IBM wanted him ah. to work on their computers. So we went and worked for IBM at P- Pugupsy, uh, New York, In 1949 where he would conceive and carry out his most successful work now he's credited as one of the first software hash tables Um, this is um, what can I say like if 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 the computer is storing uh, passwords you don't want to store the passwords as plain text that anybody can see in the event that they uh, uh, somebody hacks into your system so you encrypt those passwords and the encrypted password is called a hash. So he came up with hash tables that would encrypt passwords to protect them from prying eyes. Now, he also influenced much of the early research in in using transistors there at IBM. So he was right there at the transition from vacuum tubes to transistors in computers. Now, while he was at IBM, he created a program that would play checkers Uh, You see, IBM was trying to demonstrate just to the general public, you know, how powerful these computers were. And, you know, and and you, you know, writing a program in COBOL and just doing a, you know, a financial statement just really didn't spark the interest of the public. So he worked on a checkers program for the IBM 701. And this thing worked. I mean, he could play, uh, you know, he could play humans and his checker program won. When it was released, the stock price of IBM went up 15 points in one night. Mm. People were so impressed. Now, he thought that teaching computers to play games was very fruitful, was a very fruitful research area, because it could help you develop tactics to solve general problems. You know, And so he thought this is a very good uh, research area uh, to develop, uh, and then I can apply it to other disciplines. Now, his program used the tree search of board positions reachable from the current state. So you had a certain board configuration that would look at every single possible move, and then it would make a tree of all these possible moves all the way to the end of the game. Well, the, he didn't want to go all the way to the end of the game because that just took way too much memory. So he implemented something called alpha-beta pruning, where he had pruned the tree and he would basically weight the different paths as to to the most probable path to achieve success in the game. And so he was trying to uh, optimize the computer program so it would run quickly, and yet still uh, come up with the right move at the right time. Now Samuel developed a scoring function based on the position of the board at any time. He would score all of these different paths, pruned paths that he had been working with. Now the program remembered every position it had ever seen, along with along with the the final reward value, as they say. Where they they would evaluate each path, and they the reward value is did you win the game or not? So each path had a reward value, and then what he did, he would modify the weighting on this uh, pruning program based on uh, actual games that had been played. He would he would he went through a whole. He went through a whole list of prior championship games that had been played, and he let his computer play those games, and then he learned proper weighting of the different paths based on the results of those games. So this was the first example where a computer would learn from data, and he term, and he came up with the term then, machine learning. Now our machine learning now is much more sophisticated in that we're, we're using artificial neural networks and adjusting the values of synapses. And, um, it's, it's more, and we've got billions of neurons in those networks. So what we're doing now is really a scaled up version of this, but this was the basic seed of the idea in the very beginning. Now his programs played thousands of games against itself. And, uh, and in order to, uh, to adjust the weighting on all of the different uh, paths. Now, the Samuel Checkers playing program appears to be the first self-learning program that had ever been developed. And it was an early demonstration of the initial concepts of AI. Now, his pioneering work in non-numerical programming helped shape the instruction set for all processors you see, he wasn't really trying to calculate, um, you know, you know, a number like two divided by three. He was developing logic, logic. Which of these pads is the best? So he was developing a logic program. So his work on the uh, developing checkers influenced the logic functions that were built into the IBM computer. And those logic functions built into the IBM computer turned out to be so useful for uh, non-numeric calculations that they were adopted across the entire industry. Working essentially alone, doing his own programming, he invented several seminal techniques in rote learning, generalized learning, using such underlying techniques as mutable evaluation functions, hill climbing and signature tables. These are all ways to, uh, to, to, to basically wait, an op- to, to develop an optimum path through a problem. Now, he played a large role in establishing IBM's European laboratories, setting their research directions, especially the, the labs in Vienna and Zurich. Now, 1966, he retired from IBM and, and became a pro- professor at Stanford, where he worked the remainder of his life. Now, after Samuel's, uh, but even after retirement, he remained active in computer programming. Um, his contributions after retirement included work on SAIL, the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Language software, software for the Livermore S1 m- multiprocessor. Liver, uh, they were they were developing this for a high-speed multiprocessor. He also worked with Donald Knuth on the TEX project which was a, uh, a way to format uh, text in, in a very elegant way so you can embed equations into your, into your document. I mean, that text is an elegant deal. He continued to write software uh, past his 88th birthday. Now, the Stanford computer uh, that he used indicates that he last logged on to it February 2nd, 1990, uh, and he used that computer at his home all throughout the summer. He was given the uh, Computer Pioneer Award from the Computer Society in 1987. He died of complications of Parkinson's in July 29, 1990, just uh, a few months after the last time he used his computer. So there you go, everything you want to know about Arthur Lee Samuel, the man who did some of the formative work on machine learning as he developed the program to play checkers
0: hope you're paying attention because you can win free prizes like lunch coming up when we play the pop quiz on tech talk radio heard mm-hmm. on federal news network 1500 a.m 103.5 fm hd2 1039 fm hd2 southwest of dc on 1077 fm hd2 and in Loudoun county on 104.5 fm learn more about the programs at stratford university and find out how you can attend by going to stratford.edu yeah.
3: Featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Shirts.
1: Oh yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm certainly glad to have such an enthusiastic audience.
0: You let them go on a little longer than usual there.
1: Uh, well, I just love to hear them. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and, I've, and I'm going to give them an opportunity to get something really special. They can get tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms. And they can also get an A-plus for today's show if they get the correct answer to the pop quiz. Because this, as we know, always know, is a classroom of the airways. Correct. And we have to assess whether our audience is learning. Yes. And earlier in the show, I talked about Arthur Lee Samuel. He, of course, is uh, the man who coined the name Machine Learning. Now, when he was doing his research and developing machine learning, what game was he programmed the, the IBM computer
2: to play? Okay.
3: If you know the answer to today's question, now is your chance to pick up the phone, give us a call. If you're dialing from west mm-hmm. of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're standing next to a fried, ice-encrusted router east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, It's 877-936-9333. If you're Alpha Beta pruning your device in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized on the hour using AstraZeneca baby wipes. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church.
1: Well, I think I should talk about my fried router I because that should. has been an issue, Jim. I was down at the Bay House uh, and yesterday, and I got down there, zero internet, no internet at all. And so I thought, well, it uh, must be uh, my neighbor's w- was out. So I thought maybe I need to get the router reset. I called up the uh, the um, ISP and I said, why don't you reset my router from your end? They couldn't communicate with the router. So I, um, and it showed that the, 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 we weren't getting any downstream signal from them. And there was, of course, no upstream signal from me. So they, of course, immediately said, uh, Sir, it looks like your router is fried because it, it can't be our problem.
0: So I was I about went, to say that out. it's never their problem.
1: It's never there. so. I ran out immediately and uh, went. To, uh, there was a Walmart down there. I get, you know, I I wanted to get a, another router as quickly as I could. So the router that I had was a Dosis 3.1. That's a that's a protocol that they communicate over the cable, which gives you the most bandwidth. And I could only get. I went to Walmart. They only had a Dosis 3.0, but I figured that's okay because I'm not really maxing out my bandwidth anyway. So I right. brought it back, plugged it in called up the cable company and uh, they looked at this router I uh, the the downstream channel could not be established there was no upstream channel and I said that's the same thing I had with the other router so they said well in that case it is possible that it is the line coming into the house oh <laughs> so they they decided to schedule a uh, you know a, a visit to the house to fix the internet after the radio show now, that meant that I would have no internet for the radio show, or I would not be able to prepare the show, because I use the internet when I prepare the show. Well, I thought, at first, I thought, well, I'll just try to work around this thing. I'll I'll take my cell phone and set up a Wi-Fi hotspot on my cell phone, and then connect my uh, laptop to the cell phone and use the internet from my cell phone. And if I go to one side of the house, I get enough bars that I could do that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and then... I thought, okay, then when I want to call into the show, I have to call in using Skype so it goes into the back of the board so I don't get the delay. If I just call in as a regular phone call, I got a 10-second delay, and it's very hard to do the show. So my plan was to go and sit in the McDonald's parking lot and hook up to their Wi-Fi network, call in using my laptop on Skype. And then do the show from the car, sitting in the uh, McDonald's uh, uh, parking lot. Ah. So I, I, I thought about that for about 10 minutes. And then I, just, <laughs> and I, I told Jim about it. Uh, I called Jim up. He was highly, I would say, highly skeptical. And so he was planning to have all sorts of backup audio for the thing. So I, uh, and after 10 minutes of uh, thoughtful meditation... I decided <laughs> to drive all the way back up to Oakton. I'd just driven down there. So I drove all the way down to the bay and then all the way back
0: yesterday. You You, got went back yes- you drove down there yesterday? Yeah, I drove down yesterday. Oh my
1: God. Yeah. See, I knew the internet was out mm-hmm. because I have I have a hydroponic garden gym. This is one of my secret things that I do. Ah. And I've got cameras that are focused on the hydroponic garden and and I watch. I watch my hydroponic garden uh, through the internet cameras, and I just look from, from with my cell phone. And I can tell you, Jim, that watching a garden grow uh, in real time is actually more exciting than watching gas grow grass grow. But, or hubcaps but not, rust. But, but not too much more exciting. Uh huh. So anyway, I knew the internet was out, but I thought I just had to reboot stuff. So it's been a it's been a tough uh, a, a tough evening, but I did survive.
2: Well,
0: so. I'm glad to hear that that it's not a fraud, fried fried router because you and I have both been experimenting with technology uh, called powerline internet, right? Powerline Ethernet. P- powerline Ethernet, and we were concerned, or you were concerned initially, that the powerline device that we got, we each got, which has become, which is highly, uh, well respected. Yes. Uh, There were a couple of of notes from people who who said it had fried the router. But upon further uh, reflection on that, Doc, how could that even happen? Because the only thing – there's no power transfer between the power line device and the router. It is simply an Ethernet cable that connects the two. I mean I don't even know how that's possible. I don't either, actually. Well – But –
1: I don't know how it's possible, but that—but I was afraid of that maybe that was a problem. I didn't really know. So hopefully I'll have that up and running next week uh, and my router. Because I got really a hot, really a very excellent router down there. I'd hate for that thing to be fried.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, you upgraded that uh, when we first went into pandemic mode because the other router, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was a router that was uh, supplied by the Internet company, right?
1: Yeah, it was manufactured in 2015. Oh, well. it, I would say it was a, a dog. It had, it didn't have much RAM. It uh-huh. was terrible. Yeah. So I, um, I, I just, re- I just put in my own router. I still have that router, mm-hmm. uh, because I haven't been able to return it yet because of the pandemic. Right. Their stores are all closed. But eventually, I'll, I'll drop it off. Maybe I just put it in a plastic bag and put it and hang it on the door. And sit it out by it, their front it, door. It, it, it's, it's basically a paperweight. Uh, nobody's going to want to uh, use it.
0: Sit it by the trailer where they operate that's exactly right all right let's uh let's play the game we have somebody who'd like to join us here and we will go to (laughs) line one this is mc calling us from silver spring good morning mc how are you good morning jim and doc all is well thank you for all you do thanks doc i ahead and ask the question please early in the
1: show i talked about arthur lee samuel he of course is a computer pioneer in gaming and artificial intelligence he coined the word machine learning what game did he program where he pioneered machine learning
2: programmed
1: programmed
0: computer to play checkers. Very good. That is Excellent correct. job, MC. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing the game. We'll send that prize right out to you. And uh, we will uh, continue on here with Tech Talk. Doc, your move. Okay, let's go on, on the to air. the
1: trend of the week. This, of course, oh no, this, yeah. Then this is the trend of the week: cheating on proctored proctored exams. I mean, I'm very sensitive to this, being at the Stratford University. Yeah. Students are using HDMI cables and hidden phones to cheat on these proctored exams. <laughs> now, with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there's a uh, you know, there's a problem. I mean, schools have to give tests. Students are at home; they're not coming into the classroom because of the pandemic, so they have to take the tests online. So there's software called Proctorio. It's, um, you know, they're proctoring the exam, Proctorio. It basically is AI software, and it observes the student. It looks at where their eyes are looking. It tracks their hands. And then it gives a, uh, a score as to the likelihood that they're cheating on the exam. And if it's a high likelihood that they're cheating, then a human takes and looks at the, uh, at the video to see whether there was cheating going on. And the students just hate this. Oh, it also tracks their keyboard strokes, it monitors audio outputs. so somebody can't like whisper an answer to them. Now now universities spent thousands of dollars on, on, uh, on this uh, Proctorio software. So one, one French student had this great idea. They hooked an HDMI cable to their computer, to their laptop, and they strung it to the TV in the next room. <clears throat> Okay, they had a friend in -hmm. the next room looking at the TV, which showed the question, and then his the friend in the next room would look up the answer on the internet or or look through the textbook, and then he would send him the answer via WhatsApp on his phone, and he had the phone sitting down on the uh, on his keyboard with notifications. So pop the notification, would pop up with the answer, and and it would just look like he was looking down at his keyboard. And he was bragging about the fact that he and all of his friends were cheating on these exam with this simple, simple technique.
0: That's interesting. You know, Doc, when I, I remember you are talking about this. I remember being in high school, and I went to a good high school. Chemistry 1 got a lot of guys tripped up, and it, it, we were all doing so badly that the teacher allowed us on the final exam to have a three by five card with notes on it and to to watch how small guys could write stuff on this card uh was pretty amazing one guy five minutes into the exam was so flummoxed he took the exam put it on the teacher's desk face down walked out and on the way outside see y'all in summer school (laughs) oh wow it was pretty i passed it but uh i think i probably got a b or c i did okay in it but a lot of guys really had trouble did yeah. I can't imagine you ever had any trouble with anything in school.
1: I I enjoyed school. Uh you know I That wasn't I the
0: question.
1: I, I, I didn't I didn't have any trouble yeah. really.
0: All right. Um uh,
1: it was it was interesting, but the thing is uh I what I didn't like was people that would just like memorize the answers. So like yes. when I was in what I would do is I would derive all the I wouldn't memorize the equations, I would derive the equations. So if if I couldn't remember what an equation was, I would derive it. And being forcing yourself to actually derive the equations, you truly understand it. Well, that's so, th-
0: the point of learning, isn't it?
1: <clears throat> yeah, it is. It is. So I, I actually enjoyed learning new stuff. Um, you know, and I took I, I took a physics class in high school, and uh, my high school didn't have physics, so I had to go to the, uh, the the public school that was across the railroad tracks to take my physics class. So I would cross. The- I was supposed to walk down to the road and go around, but i just cross over the tracks. I wasn't supposed to, and I'd go over there every
0: day for physics. Wow. Th- that
1: was where I first got introduced to physics, and I loved it.
0: That's it, And, and so those credits had transferred to the other school where you went. Yeah,
1: they did. They that's, did, yeah. That's so that's I,
0: interesting, and I'm glad you survived and have both arms and both legs after crossing I, I, the I survived tracks.
1: Without, without any problem at all. You know, these deep, fake videos are a problem. This is where— what they'll do is they, they, these are, there are AI programs that they will take um, a um, you know like a video of uh, somebody doing something, and then they will superimpose on that video the face of someone else, and they make it look like it's so real. And I mean there was a, uh, a deep fake video of actor Tom Cruise that got on TikTok. and I mean it looked, it looked real. And, uh, and, and they can get on these deep fake videos. they can get the people saying anything. And, and the problem is, uh, they look so real that actually people believe videos. And so now in this day and age where everybody thinks that everything is fake, whatever news it is, it's fake news. I mean, now with these deep fake videos, maybe everything is fake news. So, I mean, a couple of years ago, it was easy to detect a fake video, but now it's, it's much, it's much more difficult. It's, uh, going to erode all, the, word, all of the trust we have in it. Now, deepfakes have gotten better. Now, companies like Microsoft have built tools to detect deepfake videos, and they detect it pretty well because they look for, for glitches in it. In fact, there's a website called Social Counter, no, Counter Social. It was able to detect that the Tom Cruise video was fake, even though it looked real. It's called Counter Social, and you can put a link in there to a deepfake video to see if it's real. But that is an ongoing problem.
0: You know what? We forgot to do something. We, we cruise right through the break. Let's just say here we are, uh, stay where we are right here. But let's also do this right now. Okay. Observations from the bunker.
1: This week, this week in the bunker, I just love sitting down here listening to that door. It's like music to my ears. I've gotten used to it. But I started thinking about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, he, uh, he, he, was, he was on my memory. I mean, the guy could achieve so much, and, and he died at age 55. And uh, Steve Jobs had a, a view as to what it means to be intelligent. <clears throat> and um, and, and it's, it, I think it's interesting, the insights that he had on on how to innovate and how it relates to what he felt would be intelligent. I thought I'd go back through his thinking. So according to Steve Jobs, I mean, being able to remember has a lot to do with it. A good memory is key. But he felt the real ability that you needed to have true intelligence was to be able to zoom out, zoom out. And he he constantly would zoom out. Now here's an example. Suppose you're in a city trying to navigate your way through the city. And you decide to zoom out by going to the 80th floor of a skyscraper. And you can see the whole city. You can see where things are going. You can actually lay a path through the whole city. You can see connections. You can see what streets are blocked and all. And you can very easily figure out how to navigate through the city from that zoomed out position. Now, compare that to the other people that are trying to get from point A to point B by reading stupid little maps. So all they're doing, they're down there on the street trying to cross this street, and then they turn left here. They don't have a clue of what the big picture
0: is. That's 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 the problem with GPS uh. and in-car navigation, is that people never zoom out. They never zoom out. You don't and get they, a perspective. And
1: they, they don't even know uh, how to get where they're going because they just they just follow the, follow the, uh, the directions. That is a problem. Yep. But he said intelligence allows you to make connections, connecting the dots. And you cannot connect the dots until you zoom out. Now, there are, there are actually, you know, all the psychologists say there are eight different kinds of intelligence, but I, I'm going to talk about two, two that, that we that we are all familiar with. They've got crystallized intelligence. Now, this is accumulated knowledge. This is, you study facts, you study figures, and you just, you accumulate knowledge that has been discovered before you, and you just basically categorize it and learn it. Now, that type of intelligence is called book smarts. And there are a lot of really book smart people who, when they get out into real life, aren't very effective at all, because book knowledge doesn't necessarily help you solve a problem. Then uh, what, uh, what uh, Steve Jobs was like was fluid intelligence, fluid intelligence. Now, that's the ability to learn and to retain new information and use it to solve a problem. Learn a new skill or recall an existing memory and modify that to apply it to a new problem using your new knowledge. So you basically are adapting what you know and how you apply it as you experience new things. Now, in simple terms, that's called street smarts. You know, you basically learn as you go. So plenty of people are book smart. Plenty of people are street smart. Mm -hmm. So the key is to have somebody who has both. Now, improving fluid intelligence requires you to take a deep dive and then move to something new and do it over and over again. The only way to improve your fluid intelligence and to keep it high is to experience new things, learn new things, try new things, challenge yourself. So people that get into a rut don't do that. And that's really the key. So, you know, uh, the Steve Jobs, for instance, Steve Jobs liked to have broad experiences. Like he audited a calligraphy class in college, and that was an inspiration for Apple's early typefaces. Before he started Apple, he went to India, and he just went over there on a, a sort of a religious trek uh, with Buddhist monks to try to find himself. And much of his inspiration for creating a simple interface, having simplicity in design, having a close connection to the user, came from those experiences in India in these Buddhist monasteries. So he worked to broaden his experiences and develop this fluid intelligence. Or another example would be Kevin Plank. He used his experience at playing football... And he sweat where he did would sweat a lot to develop Under Armour's moisture wicking garments.
0: I had no <laughs> idea that's how this started.
1: Yeah, and, and that's from, and that guy's from that's in Baltimore. Yeah, that's yep. a, that, that, that's a Baltimore company. Mm-hmm. He's made a mint so, doing this. Yeah, so the more you learn, the more likely you'll be able to associate old knowledge to new things. That is make that is what he called connecting the dots. And then as you learn new things by connecting to old knowledge, you only have to learn differences, not nuances. So your learning rate accelerates. So all of this makes learning easier and you can learn more. So Steve Jobs spent a lot of effort in his life trying to zoom out so we could get perspective and connect the dots. I just thought that was really insightful. I I wanted to share that. So uh, let's talk about the idea of the week, I know. I know Jim is really w- worried about
0: non-fungible tokens. I've got a pile of them lying about, and I don't know non-fungible
1: to do tokens. This is a, this is a. <laughs> 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 I mean, first of all, it's a terrible name, it,
0: uh, but it, it, yeah, because nobody, you don't know what it is.
1: Yeah, uh, Jim. While I'm uh, talking about this, why don't you look up the word, the name, fungible, and see w- see what the definition
0: is. Research desk is on it.
1: Research out. Yeah, the the musician Grimes sold some animations that she made with her, her brother's Mac on a website called Nifty Gateway. Now, there were some one-offs that she created. Now, others were limited editions of a few hundred. They, she sold all of them in 20 minutes, and she made $6 million, and she was selling non-fungible tokens for her artwork. Now, despite the price tag any that, you know... Uh, you know, anybody could actually click or save her stuff, but uh, but she was giving people ownership of these things through non-fungible tokens. And she she had one picture of a cherub ascending over Mars, Earth, and an imaginary landscape, and it was a huge demand. So rather than copy files themselves, eager buyers receive a special kind of tradable certificate called the non-fungible token. What they're really paying for is an aura of authenticity uh, where they actually own a piece of that digital artwork, and they would have the ability to sell it someday for a profit. Now, NFTs are a cultural answer to creating technical scarcity on the internet, and they're making inroads in all kinds of realms of high art, rock music, even mass markets like virtual NBA trading cards. Now... Non fungible tokens are actually digital significance that authenticate a claim of ownership to an asset um, and allows it to be transferred or sold. So the certificates are secured with blockchain technology. Blockchains are the technology that underlies uh, Bitcoin, for instance, it's a distributed ledger. And uh, these blockchains are decentralized alternatives to a central database. Blockchains usually store information encrypted from across a peer-to-peer network, and it makes them very difficult to tamper with. This, in turn, makes them useful for keeping important records. Now, blockchains uh, can be used for logistics management. They can be used for real estate trades. So they're using blockchains to actually trade this digital art, which is a tremendous application. Now, this blockchain, that this non-fungible uh, tokens are built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. Remember, I talked about Ethereum earlier. That was a blockchain program that was really developed for developers. It has APIs on it. So all of the, the blockchain features uh, with the tokens, with the authentication of the ledger, all that's built into it. And you can just put an application on top of the Ethereum platform. And so they basically put these non-fungible tokens on top of the Ethereum platform. And so the tokens, the digital tokens that they give away to validate the blockchain are, uh, are Ethereum. They call them Ether, Ether coins. Mm-hmm. And so people are getting these Ether coins. And this thing is working. I mean, there was a producer of three, producer 3LAU. He raised $11 million on non-fungible token auctions around his latest album. The top bidder received a custom song created by Three Lau, and I mean, he made that in a matter of days. There are no shortage of buyers for non-fungible tokens. The market's already worth millions. This is a Really a great application for Ethereum. Yep. Okay, now so what does
0: fungible mean, Jim? F- fungibility is the ability for a good or asset to be in exchange with other individual goods or assets of the same type. For instance, and as money is concerned, a $100 bill is the same as 520s or $101 bills. So there you go.
1: Okay, so what is it? so? how does it relate to non-fungible tokens then? How does that relate?
0: Well, non-fungible means you can't you can't use that. You can't do that.
1: You can't do that. Right. Okay. Oh, you just can't exchange it. Yeah. yeah right. It's non-fungible. So you own it, and, and you can't put it in any other form. You actually own the actual product. Correct. There so, you go. So, uh, but this is a great application of distributed ledgers. It's going to start showing up all over the place, I'm telling you. Now, let me just see here. I've got enough time to talk about Wi-Fi extender versus a mesh network. Everybody yes. wants to know about that. Double-time So. Like in your in your house, if you have a, uh, <clears throat> a Wi-Fi extender, it's usually a little box that you plug in, and it connects to your existing network, and it sets up another Wi-Fi hotspot with another Wi-Fi network name. And that way you can extend your Wi-Fi to a room that had a weak Wi-Fi signal. Now, uh, and uh, usually uh, if you just have one room that's sort of lacking it, you, uh, you could just use a Wi-Fi extender. But if you discover that you need to have three or four Wi-Fi extenders around the house, uh, that's not a good idea. You really are gonna wanna get a mesh network where you can just go from uh, node to node to node, and then you'd switch to a mesh network. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out all of our programs there. And tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
2: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1 800 444 0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.